Y'all good? Everybody nice and rested this week? Everyone feel good? The week before spring break. Yep. The week before spring break is usually a week where not many people feel super rested. So, uh, so wake up, because we've got the long book of Titus to study tonight, both pages. And so, yes. So that is, I call that the mercy of God, just right when you need it, let's give us a short study. Who knows, maybe we'll even finish early. I doubt it. It's never happened in 14 years, but could, you know, tonight could be the night. Who knows? Um, let's pray. We'll dig into it. Lord, we come to you uh, tonight, and we are thankful for the opportunity to dig into the book of Titus and to consider your word here in the middle of the week. Um, Lord, I, I pray that as, as, uh, as I know there's many who are so tired, who are so ready for spring break, who would rather just kind of drop their pack and start vacation now or whatever it might look like. I'm thankful for the ways that you sustain us, Lord. I'm thankful for um, the reality that no one sustains themselves. And I'm also thankful for what we see in this book as we're reminded tonight about what our life is really supposed to be about. Um, No matter who we are as believers, we have a very specific calling. Uh, We love you, Lord. We humble ourselves before you. ask that you would guide our time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What was the main point Hold on. Now, this is an overview study. So the point is, when you're done with all these overview studies, I want you to be able to look back and say, oh, if I need to deal with this, I can go there because I know that this book is about this. That's kind of the idea here. And that's why we start every week the same, because I want you guys to be able to say, oh, Galatians is about blank. And if you were to fill in that blank, what would that be? Galatians is about faith. And Ephesians is about grace. And Philippians is about humility. And Colossians is about new life. Two people here that week. Uh, 1 Thessalonians is about the second coming. 2 Thessalonians is about, what was that? Hope, yep. 1 Timothy is about what? Leadership. And what was last week's 2 Timothy study on? Success. The biblical picture of success and how it may not be what you expect. Which brings us to Titus, a book of beginnings. So the one word to describe the book of Titus is beginnings. Paul wrote to Titus sometime in the first century, perhaps between AD 55 and 60. So somewhere in that five-year span is when they think this letter was written. Now, last week we studied 2 Timothy and we learned that that was likely the last letter that ever was penned by Paul. And so there was a lot of emotion in it, a lot of pictures of what success is and what, what Timothy needed to hear. Well, Paul walked closely with more than just Timothy, and one of those people that he walked closely with was Titus. Titus had been a fellow missionary with Paul up until the point that Paul left him on the island of Crete to take care of some unfinished business and appoint elders in all the churches. So the idea is Paul and Titus are traveling together, and they get to this island of Crete, and there's multiple Christian churches, and there needs to be someone who appoints proper leadership in those Christian churches. And so he left Titus there on the island of Crete to do that. Apparently, the the purpose of this letter of Paul back to Titus is this. Some in the churches were advocating false hopes, 
They were saying, put your hope in circumcision, put your hope in worldly things, put your hope in the law, put your hope in works, whatever it might be. But they were advocating false hope. So in this letter, Paul's main point is to instruct Titus about how his work there, especially about what should be taught in light of the false um, hopes of tempting many, should be done. So there's this false hope, it's tempting many people, and Paul is writing to Titus saying, let's be clear about what your work is there, because these false hopes are troubling people. It's very similar to what we heard in Timothy. These false teachers are leading people astray, and you have to be um, certain and clear and disciplined in your work. And so this, this short letter really outlines... Um, two things, two main points. So let's, let's look at uh, 1, 1 through 4 and read aloud, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior, to Titus my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. From the get-go, what does Paul say about real hope? He's going to be addressing hope and these false hopes, but right in that intro, he says something important about real hope. What, what does he say? It was promised from God. God never lies. Was promised before the ages began. And what is the hope? What do we see about the hope? Salvation. Salvation. Which which points to what? Eternal life. Eternal life is a significant, purposefully significant, motivating factor for the believer. We're going to see ultimately that's why he saves you, so that you would have hope. For eternal life, because the wages of sin is death, and death can separate you from God unless death is overcome by another. And so that's sort of this foundational thing that this hope is a hope of eternal life, which God promised. It's a promise, it's, a, it's the reason God moves, because we should have an eternal hope. From there, the rest of the letter really outlines two main points, and they're this. First, get good teachers in place. So he's saying, okay, Titus, here's the letter. And here's the two main things. Number one, get good teachers in place. And number two, teach the truth. Those are the two main points of this little letter. Get good teachers in place and teach the truth. And a good way to remember this book, it's about beginnings, and we'll get to that in a minute, In a minute, but um, is just remember Titus and teaching. Because about these beginnings, as these churches are beginning, he's laying the groundwork saying, teaching is really important. So put good teachers in place and teach the truth. So get good teachers in place. Look at verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now, as a, uh, an executive pastor, I get fired up when I see biblical things about good order. Because good order is very biblical. Sometimes we, we make this mistake, especially in our culture, that sort of the, the, uh, the real spiritual things that are really true are sort of this existential thing that you can't really wrap your hands around. And it, and it, you know, it just happens. If it's, if it's real, it just happens. Kind of like love. 
if it's real, it just, it just overcomes you. You can't, you can't know. A very large portion of our faith is a faith of good order and a faith of um, putting things into order and a faith of, of discipline, you know, that view of love, like it's not real if you have to try. That's not biblical. If it, biblically, if you will to love someone, you can. That's not a good Valentine's card, but it's true. <laughs> I'm going to will to love you today in spite of all of your shortcomings. Yeah. So, so here we see this picture of good order. Uh, what's the most important first point to Titus here? What, what, what is he outlining? Just that little verse. What, what's important? When we're talking about good order, what are we talking about? A point. Appoint elders for the leadership of the church. Appoint elders for the leadership of the church. One of the realities is that the elder authority, which we'll read about here in a minute, is not this ultimate authority. I'm one of three elders here. Elder, bishop, pastor, they're all used interchangeably in the original language. It all means the same thing. And it's essentially a shepherd who oversees. Um, so there's this reality that we see here that churches aren't allowed to lead themselves. That's a reality. However, elders have specific authority. It's not just whatever authority. I mean, if I tell you, I'm going to need your car and your ATM card, and I'm your pastor, so cough it up. You should say, no, you're not trustworthy. You're apparently you're greedy for a dishonest gain. So it, it's not this ultimate authority. So sometimes when we talk about authority biblically, one of the things that troubles me is we just say, Authority. Like, who has the authority? Well, that's not even a good question to ask because authority has to be more thinly sliced. Elders lead the church. The church isn't allowed to lead itself, but that doesn't mean that the congregation has zero authority whatsoever. That's why in our most recent members meeting, we said, we have to hear from you on a decision we think we need to make because you're a part of that decision. It's an important reality. But it's not just well, we're not allowed to make decisions because we're leaders. We, we have to lead because the church is supposed to be led. So here, this, this first important point is, first things first, let's make sure the elders are in place. Let's make sure someone who can teach this truth is in place. So my question is, what are some things that churches often get out of order when in place of new beginnings? Because this is new beginnings church. I mean, you see new beginnings churches. They, they kind of get that from this idea in Titus and there were these, you know, Island of Crete and all these churches that are new that needed some good order. So when we're in a time of new beginnings, what are some things that we sometimes get out of order and put first? Well, we think about what we'd like to do. And what are some of those things that we might like to do that are so sometimes more important than... Yeah, as far as the church goes. We need good music. First and foremost, we're going to plant a church... Or if we're going to do what Crosspoint's currently doing and kind of moving potentially from one paradigm um, to another, we're trying to really you know, be super mindful of those who don't have a church home and trying to create space for them. First things first, we just got to make sure we've got good music. We need good coffee. Coffee. Good parking. Parking. Yeah. Yes, yeah. A good, good signage. If you don't have good signage, ain't no one getting saved. Do what? Colors are important. Don't confuse people with too many colors, and don't confuse them with too many fonts. Don't go font crazy, church. <laughs> Churches go font crazy a lot. We'll have a bulletin with 18 fonts if you're not careful. Aaron's masterful at just, just riding that line perfectly. 
we can get so off course so easily when we forget about the importance and the centrality of good teaching in the church. As we're leaning forward in this season and considering the possibility of two services and things like that, first and foremost, as your leadership meets is the sermons might be shorter, but they will not be watered down. They will not be jeopardizing anything. They will not be less deep just because they're not, you know, 60, 70, 80 minutes doesn't mean that they have to be watered down. And that's a first and foremost thing. But it's so easy when you're trying to, you know, start a new season or remain fresh or plant a new church to just have everything out of order. Consider how we just planted in, in Rockwall. One of the first things we did was, well, are we pregnant as a church? Is this time, um, the memory meeting was funny, we're certainly stuffed, but are we pregnant? Uh, and then, um, is, is there leadership in place to do that? And it was the same thing that happened in commerce. Well, we think we should plant a church in commerce. Well, if no one steps up to do it or to be a part of it or to take that initiative, it's not likely that that's a calling. And it was the same thing in Rockwall. But in commerce, God brought about uh, David and Ron and Kevin. And in uh, Rockwall, God brought about Ryan and Lance and Kai. And it was very obvious that that something's going on here because we're getting some leadership put in place. And once we have that leadership in place, we start worrying about these other things, like where are you going to meet or who's going to lead worship or things like that because good teaching sets the course for all of those things. In fact, as I was preparing for this Titus study, I experienced personally having received good teaching and how it has that long-term effect because as I'm going through here and I'm picking up things about you know, the qualifications for the elders and some of the things we're going to talk about and sound doctrine, I remember hearing sermon after sermon after sermon about this when we were in the other building. And I was like, gosh, this is still fresh because there are men who took seriously the call to teach and make sure good leadership was in order. Following this charge, Paul gives 15 different characteristics about what elders and teachers should look like or should be. What they should be. I want to be careful. That's something that I'm trying to be mindful of because we always ask, you know, what does it look like? You know, what does obedience look like? Well, we should talk about what it is. So this is what the elder is, what they should be, not just what they look like in verses 6 through 9. And as a, an elder who is to remain um, transparent and accountable, it is humbling to read these next few verses in front of a group of people because it is no small thing that is outlined here. It says this, um, appoint the elders in every town as I directed. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Fifteen characteristics. And we can break these characteristics down into smaller groups. The first has to do with the elder's family. What does it say about his family? Say it again. Believers. Husband of one wife. We believe that to mean husband of one wife. 
So in, the, in, the, in this context in Crete, polygamy wasn't an openly practiced thing, although this text would speak to polygamy. And divorce wasn't a commonly practiced thing there either. So we don't believe it means that someone can't be divorced. There's some churches that believe that's what this means, and so they wouldn't have elders who have been previously divorced or remarried. We actually here just believe that it means exactly what it says, a husband of one wife. And we believe it further means a, a one-woman man, only eyes for his bride. So what else does it say about his family? Not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. What, what do those two words mean? How would you say that more plainly? Your kids aren't out of control, breaking all the rules and not caring about it. So what's interesting there is that um, how my children live is a direct reflection of my fittedness for this leadership role of elder. That means if Ella loses her ever-loving mind and starts dealing drugs or being whatever, that, that affects my fittedness of leading this church. It's, it's very humbling, and, and, and it shows that there's something about the, the, the home that's certainly a proving ground for such things. But the thing is, it's not just an elder thing, because what we'll find is that the elder is setting an example for others to follow. So the idea is that every Christian home is moving in such a manner. But there are times where um, our children, as they get older and can make decisions, but they're still they're, uh, mature but not yet dependent, is a good way to put it. And so they're still in our homes, and if they are living lives of, of debauchery and, and drunkenness and insubordination and rule-breaking, and they're doing so in an unrepentant manner, that eliminates a guy, no matter how holy he might be, no matter how well-versed he might be, no matter what kind of leadership qualities he might have, that actually disqualifies him. He doesn't get a pass on that. And it doesn't just have to be when they are teenagers. I mean, that's obviously the point where a lot rebel, but I mean even if they're younger children or um, insubordinate pagans, you know, that's, that's a problem as well. So that, that, that was meant to be a laugh. I don't call children insubordinate pagans usually. So, um, so yeah, his family. Does it say anything else about his family? Above approach, husband and one wife, children of believers, not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination. So then it also says just about his relationships with others. What does it say about his relationships with others? Not arrogant. Not quick-tempered. Self-control. Not violent or greedy. Yeah, yeah, not violent or greedy. It's an important distinction there. Yeah, if you come to me to talk to me about something and I'm more prone to punch you in the nose than I am calmly talk through some things, that's a problem. And here's the deal. The reality is, and I, I've probably learned it more in the last six years than, than the previous eight that I've been here. Um, if you're prone to anger, ministry is just going to draw it out of you. And, and that's not just something that I can say as a pastor that y'all like, ah, y'all don't understand. 
But ministry can be pretty hard and people can be pretty difficult. You guys walk with each other. Every believer understands the dynamic of if you are prone to something, given to something. It's sort of like in marriage. Marriage is the most sanctifying instrument in your life. And so what that means is that your spouse has this uncanny ability to pull things out of you and, and push your buttons. But at the same time, if you have self-control and you're disciplined and you respect and love one another, those things don't happen. So there's this sanctifying thing. Well, the same thing happens here. If, if you are given to just, just getting angry about everything, it's not enough. We saw that with Paul and Timothy. Timothy, if you're upset about something going on, it's not enough for you just to be angry. Now, there is a time to be angry and do not sin where, ang- where holy, righteous anger is fitting. But if your default is just, oh, yeah, that's going on, well, that hacks me off. Well, that's going on, I hate these people. Well, that's going on, why are they so stupid? That, you're not in a good role to be in that leadership role that God has designed for the church to remain healthy. So his relationships with others are important. Um, it, it goes on to say his, uh, his love of what is good. What does it say about his love of what is good? What, what is that referring to? Hate sin and love what? Yeah, it, go, it, it has this negative thing up front. You know, don't be greedy, don't be a drunkard, don't be violent but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Blameless is a word that is used there. Um, there's these positive things that we see. And then just a firmness in the truth. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught. You can't be just flippant about this. You, if you're in the leadership role in the church, whether it's elder or anything else, because all the other things are supposed to be able to look to the elder and find an example, you cannot be flippant about the word. You can't just sort of you know, dabble in it. It has to be something that you take very seriously. You have to know it, um, especially in regard to, you know, putting good teachers in place and teaching the truth. We've got to also consider what, what we see here is plurality. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town. You break down the language, it becomes very, very clear that every single local church should have multiple elders, plurality. And it reflects so much in the wisdom literature about what wisdom is. You listen to a plurality of counsel to get wisdom. And so it creates built-in accountability, transparency, um, discipline, pushing one another when you have multiple. If there's just one guy who's in charge, guess who doesn't have to submit to leadership? That guy. But if it's a plurality and each of them has an equal voice, then even plurality itself has to submit to leadership. If Ben and Brad have a decision about something and I disagree and we, and we get counsel and we make the circle a little bigger, we move on and I, and I still disagree, do you know what I get to do in that moment? I get to submit to leadership the same way you're expected to. And it's a model for that. You don't always get your way. That's not the kind. The, the leadership in the church is not a domineering, uh, edict, um, um, giving, commanding leadership. It's a leadership of plurality, and every local church should have multiple. In fact, in our, in our current covenant, in our current constitution and bylaws, um, we, we shouldn't have less than three. And so uh, part of what it says in our membership covenant is we encourage you to regularly and actively submit names of people who can fit this leadership role. 
But in order for you to know that, you have to know this. And so that's part of what's important about studying Titus is you guys, you have a responsibility to do that. It also says, so there's plurality and there's appointment. Some think that, that this verse says that Titus just had sort of a unilateral move where he could just say, all right, I'm appointing these two guys over here. I'm appointing these two guys over here. I'm appointing these two guys over here. The reality is there's multiple churches where he's supposed to appoint the elders. And the re- what that tells us is that it's, it's the congregation likely knew those leaders better than Titus. And so the congregation would have put people in place to lead the church. And Titus's role would have been to come and the, the word for appoint is ordain, to ordain them. It's not just Titus as a CEO saying, all right, let's see who my VPs are going to be and we're going to move accordingly. It's not like that. It is the, the congregation had this insight that Titus likely wouldn't have had because he wasn't an active member at every church on the island of Crete. And so there's this beautiful thing here where we see a trust, like a real mutual trust between the congregation and between the leadership, and especially with Titus saying, I'm going to appoint these elders, I'm going to ordain them, because they're already being proven in the way that they're serving this, this congregation who knows them better than I do. So pretty neat, pretty uh, encouraging picture there. Um, so we see plurality, we see appointment, and then we just see priority, you know? How we moved with our church plans, keeping the first things first. It's so easy if you're leaning forward in a season, if you're starting something new, if you're trying to you know, push for something fresh and alive, it's so easy to not keep the main thing the main thing. And he says here the main thing, put teachers in place and make sure they teach the truth. So good teachers have to be in place, but then he spends actually the larger majority of his letter in the second part, teach the truth teach the truth. Paul instructs Titus to teach two main groups of leaders. Who do y'all think the two main groups are? It's unexpected. I didn't expect this when I was first reading and I was like, okay, there's two main groups. Let's see who I think they are. And it wasn't who I expected. Who are the two main groups that are supposed to be taught here? Anyone have an idea? They're in there, but they fall within two main groups. That's a really good guess. That was a really good guess because you're right. Yeah. Yep. That, that might be an even better guess. I mean, golly, you're, I didn't realize it was a, a question with trick answers. So let, look at verse 10. It says, for, for there are many who, insubordinate, who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. It goes on to say, they must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. They're getting a following, they're trying to tell people what they want to hear, and they're getting paid as self-appointed leaders. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. <laughs> That's a nice way of saying, let me tell you what someone else said, and I'm just going to affirm it. I didn't say it, I'm just going to affirm it. It's called the foot in the door method rather than the door in the face method. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, not uh, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing's pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, 
and unfit for any good work. So who are the two groups that he's supposed to teach? What? The pure and the defiled. You're actually right. Teach the false teachers. That's the first thing that kind of surprised me. Like the false teachers, you're just supposed to shut them up, right? Shut them up and get them out because they're causing terrible division. But what he says here is, this testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. So there's this picture of teaching the false teachers and the other side of it is teaching the true believers in the church. What do we know about these false teachers from what we just read? What do we know about them? They're bad. I'll start there. That's the obvious thing. But what do we know about them according to what the 10 through 16 says? They are liars, evil beasts, lazy, insubordinate. What? They eat too much. A good leader is disciplined enough not to be a lazy, evil beast, liar, lazy glutton. That's not supposed to be the standard. What else do we know about them? What are they doing? Teaching for shameful gain. And what, what impact is that having on the families? Notice the families as an important unit of the church. What's happened to the families in this false teaching? It's upsetting whole families. Entire families who are so important to God are being upset by this false teaching. It's just an interesting reminder here. Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. When you rebuke someone sharply, remember what your main goal is. I know in my flesh, when I get into an argument and I get to that rebuking sharply, sometimes in my flesh, my main hope isn't that they would have sound faith, but that they would apologize, that they would you know, confess how stupid they are compared to what I'm saying, that I would be right, they'd be wrong. But really, a sharp rebuke. Remember, think about any time you've gotten into something with someone, and it's a sharp rebuke. I recently sharply rebuked someone, and this is a huge reminder of what's the purpose in the sharp rebuke? Well, that they would have sound faith. It's interesting here that the souls of those who teach false doctrine are still in Paul's sights. Would that be the case if there were false teachers appointing themselves to teaching roles at Crosspoint Fellowship? Would we be able to actively engage them with truth, sharply rebuking them, but with the hope that they could have sound faith? We don't give up on people is what we're seeing here, right? One of the, one of the signs of a church that has good leadership and good teaching is we just don't give up on people. We're not going to put up with falseness. We're not going to put up with lies. We're not going to put up with bad teaching. We're not going to put up with twisting the gospel. But we're also not going to put up with people who write people off, who act like it's hopeless. The goal, the heart behind it should be soundness and faith. Now, we are going to see something else here that will bring this back around. But the souls of those who teach false doctrine were still important to Paul, even in the sharp rebuke. Paul picks up these false teachers again in 3.9. Now, let's see what it says. It says, in 3.9, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. 
knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. What does Titus absolutely have to protect the church from? Division. Paul's looking at Titus and saying, man, you got a bunch of churches that need leadership. You got false teachers that have made their way in. You got people arguing over these dissensions and these these genealogies and things regarding the law. And it's like, here's the main point over here, and they're arguing over these things over here. That's what it means to be quarrelsome, by the way. Quarrelsome doesn't mean you don't ever argue. It just means you're arguing about everything. Or you're arguing about the insignificant things. And so it doesn't, I mean, we're called to stand firm. We're called to give an account for the hope that we have, and we're called to do so with gentleness and respect. But if every single day you find it very easy to argue with whoever about whatever, that means you're quarrelsome. Quarrelsomeness is frowned on because it is always ready for an argument. This wisdom says only argue about the right things because arguing about controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, it's not just a bad idea. It's unprofitable and worthless. Worthless. What's the value in that? There is none. There is no value in that. So, Titus absolutely has to protect the church from division. But, so how is, he, how is he doing it? How is he protecting the church from division? What does he just tell them? It's plain. I just said it. Sound teaching, and what is he urging them to avoid? Do what? Yeah, these quarrels here. So avoid stupid arguments and warn those who become involved in such things. And then it, this, is a, this is a hard script piece of scripture here, this next verse. It says, then what? Have what to do with them? Nothing. I don't know if we've ever done this as a church. We go through a discipline process when it's necessary. We've exercised church discipline when it was fitting to exercise church discipline. It is usually a long, tedious, hard process. No one's supposed to enjoy it. But here we see warn these people who are arguing about stupid stuff and just, just getting into it every day, all day in the church. Warn them once, and then twice, that's it. Have nothing to do with them. It's almost this picture of like, they are at such a point that you're not going to help them. That, that's where they're at. They're just argumentative, they're quarrelsome, they're, they're, they'll argue over anything. So avoid them, have nothing to do with them. So this is a hard, and it's confusion, confusing, but why do you think Paul's so severe? Really take into account what he is doing in writing a letter to Titus. Why do you think Paul is so severe in this verse? Yes. In this early state, the, the church is fragile. It's a great word. I used to think, as a younger guy, before I was ever ordained, thank the Lord, um, I thought 
you know, people talk about, you know, what hill are you going to die on? You know, you argue it. I thought it was kind of a noble thing to like, I'll die on every hill. <laughs> Bring it on. If we disagree, I will do it emphatically. And that is young ignorance. Because you know what? You get real tired real fast, and people get real tired of you real fast if you keep on that, that course. And so here we see this picture of, why is this so severe? Confusion of the gospel is an enemy of the gospel. If you're going to choose a hill to die on, you, you die on this hill. Confusion of the gospel is an enemy of the gospel. So when people are coming in, teaching false things, and, and these, these dissensions or, or these uh, foolish controversies, dissensions, you know, that's all about putting your hope in the wrong thing and then fighting about if it's right or not. And so Paul is severe here because confusion of the gospel is an enemy of the gospel. But what's behind this motivation? Even bigger than this, Paul loves the church. Who loves it more? Who loves it more than Paul? Yeah, God. God's love, the main motivation here, is God's love for his church, God's desire for purity, God's um, um, I want to say infatuation, but that's a weird word to use, with the truth, essentially. God loves the truth, and he loves his church, and he loves the gospel, and he sent his son for such a purpose as this. And so when the gospel is twisted, and people are getting twisted over things that you shouldn't be twisted over, and there's false teaching, Paul says to Timothy, you have to avoid division because God loves his church. It's not just Paul saying to Titus, I said Timothy, Paul say, it's not just Paul saying to Titus, look man, I got a lot invested here and I need you to, to, to man up and take care of the false teachers. He's saying, no, you love everybody, false teachers included, because above and beyond my call to you is a call that I have from God and God loves this church more than anybody. No one loves the church more than our Lord. And that's something, that's a motivation for us as we're talking about leadership and we're talking about teaching and we're talking about truth and we're talking about avoiding controversies and, and divisions. The motivation behind that isn't because we just want to do it right. If, if it's just a matter of works, then we're no different than the false teachers. But if we rightly understand this is the bride of Christ and no one cares more about it than God, then we find our motivation. Every time in Christian life, when you're trying to dig down deep and figure out why you want to do something, it better be something outside of what you find down deep. It better be God. God's love for his church should be our motivation for the truth. Dever says this too. Great insight. He says, this means that one of the most important things that any pastor or elder will do for you is something that you may never notice. Working hard to know scripture in order to protect you from false teachings. I'll say it again. I, I'm just going to say what he said, and I agree with it, kind of like he did earlier. This means that one of the most important things that any pastor or elder will do for you is something that you may never notice, working hard to know scripture in order to protect you from false teachings. There's kind of a, a view sometimes um, that uh, like we caricature it in leadership as the, the must-be-nice uh, mentality. And it's sort of like, oh, you just sit up there and read your Bible all day? Must be nice. Oh, you don't actually do work? You just you're reading Titus this afternoon, huh? Must be nice. 
And uh, I used to think that when I, in fact, when I first came here, I had baggage from my previous ministry that I was at. And I remember there was a day where I was in my office that was um, at the end of the hall. It's now been, they took a wall out. And since then, I think we've added part of one back. And now it's like a children's area, but that was my office. And um, I was not an elder. Ben was full on my boss. And I heard him coming down the hall. And he, was, he wasn't just my boss, but he was my new boss, and he was a Marine, and I was stubborn, and so I'm like, but I, I, I wanted to play the game right, right? And so I'm sitting in my office, and I'm studying my, my Bible, and as he gets close, this thing happens inside that I don't, I didn't know it was there. As he gets close, I go... tossed my Bible to the right, I grabbed my new laptop computer, one of the first ones I had as an adult, very, yeah, I'm very, I'm very busy, type, 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 Woo, important stuff, yeah, and he goes, what are you doing? I said, I'm working very hard, and he said, no, what'd you just do? I said, it's typing, it's a laptop, work. And he said, did you just toss your Bible to get on the computer to be working? And I was like, I, I, yes, I was taking some time to study something in the Word, but I'm, I'm back at it now. <laughs> and I'll never forget, it was a pivotal moment in my life. He looks at me and he goes, your job is to know that Word. Don't ever do that again, it's weird. And then he left. And I was like, why was that weird? What, why, why did I do that? Like, why did I toss that and act like I'm doing PowerPoint or something for slides on Sunday? Like, why did that happen? And it was because I was told at a previous ministry, um, when I was found reading my Bible, found reading my Bible, um, you're at work, you need to do that on your own time. It's a different perspective, right? You're at work, you do that on your own time. One of the most important things that a pastor elder will do for you is something you may never notice, working hard to know scripture in order to protect you from false teachings. When they're putting these churches in place, you put leadership in place that can teach and you make sure they teach the truth. In order to teach the truth, they have to know the truth. In order to know the truth, part of the job is reading your Bible and you shouldn't feel guilty about it, nor should you. It's part of your responsibility as a believer. When you take a few minutes in the middle of your day to sit and open the word, it's not like, a, like checking out. It's not like a, a an, it's like this, like devotionals aren't escapism, right? But sometimes we feel that way because everything's so busy and all the kids need something or someone needs something and here I am just reading the Bible. must be nice. We should not feel guilty about such things. It's important. Yeah. They're well-versed in their version. Right. So they, they have a way of presenting half-truths. Mm-hmm. So instead of doing the, doing the right things right, they do the wrong things right. Yep. Does that make sense? And they make it look right. Yeah. Right. So 
Yeah. That's why it's called deception. It's not usually just outright blatancy, although sometimes it is. But that's why it's called deception. Is I mean, one of the hardest arguments I've had ever was someone that I knocked on their door and they just laid into me like they were waiting on me. It was the weirdest thing ever. But the way he said everything and he quoted like a hundred scriptures when he said it, I was like, I mean, it sounds like a good point, but I think you're nuts. Like, I think you are off the wall. I didn't say that. And so I actually just said to the guy, and I have to hold this story before, but I said to him, I said, you know, we're on the same team, I think, and the way you just use scripture so combatively, I think is wrong. I don't think that's the point of it. And he looked at me and said, I think it's sad that you call yourself a pastor and don't know the scriptures. And he shut the door. And he was right in the moment. Again, another pivotal moment. It was like, oh my gosh, I just got schooled by a false teacher and I don't, I got nothing. Like he just made me look like a chump. And all I can say is, I'm a chump. I don't know my Bible well enough. And I'm telling you, that was actually a day where it was like something changed. And it was like, I want to be a reader. I want to be a studier. I want to be more disciplined in these things. And God, I don't know, something about being broken on that. Because I was a chump with a capital C. Because I had nothing to say. And anyone watching would have been like, way to go, loser. Way to represent God and his church well. Sitting there with your hands in your pocket doing nothing about getting punched in the face by this angry 60-year-old. This very scary man. But um, I, uh, that was, a, that was, a, that was a, a significant day of change because... Like you said, it wasn't that he was bad at it. He was really good at it. And, and we may have different beliefs in the same faith. I want to transition away. But who was the greatest deceiver? Satan. Yeah. It wasn't that he was, like he was crafty is the word. Crafty is a good word. You know, describing what Clay just said. Crafty. It's not, it's not usually super sloppy. So a lot of times the the really dedicated false teachers are crafty. And why is it false and why are they teaching it? Because they actually believe it or they believe that they'll get something out of it that they've made an idol out of. So teach the false teachers and teach the true believers. Look at 2, 1 through 10. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dig dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants, this is just workers, are to be submissive to their own masters or their bosses and everything. They're to be well-pleasing and not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So we see all these different groups. We see older men directly addressed. We see older women directly addressed. And sometimes when you see like those who are weaker in the faith mentioned in Scripture, you always say, well, that's not me. Kind of like what Ben was saying on Sunday, like those who are are difficult. You always say, well, that's not me. Call me crazy. I'm not going to make eye contact with anyone on purpose right now, but sometimes when we talk about older women, everyone says, that's not me. And that's a cultural lie. 
It's just a cultural lie. Our culture makes an idol out of youth. It really does. And the Bible holds highly age and wisdom. And in fact, if you read your Bible, usually youngness is equated with foolishness and olderness is equated with wisdom. And so, you know, Dever was in this whole section. He was like, you know, if you're going to lie about your age, lie up. It's more biblical if you're going to lie. But he goes on. He says, younger men should be self-controlled example setters. But he doesn't address what Titus is to, how Titus is to move with the younger women because we see that the younger women have been entrusted to the older women. And if you're a younger woman who has trouble uh, loving your husband... And, child, and children, if you have trouble being self-controlled or pure, working at home, kind, submissive to your own husbands, it's interesting because it says older women teach that. So again, this whole notion of love is only real if it's easy is completely blown out of the water because apparently if someone doesn't know how to love their husband and children, there's an older woman who can straight up teach them how to do it. You can teach love. That's what this says. It's not just this ethereal, ooey-gooey emotion. Older women can teach younger women how to love their husbands and how to love their children. If you will to love someone, you can. And then, you know, workers. Dever has a point. He says, the way you work may be the most powerful way that God reaches your employers. And when you hate your job and you want to become more argumentative and frustrated, consider that God has your employer in mind when he tells you how you're supposed to do your job. There's no part of your Christianity that doesn't infiltrate every part of your life. That's kind of what we're seeing here. We saw it in the last two pastoral letters as well. And look at 2.11 through 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. What's the point of all this? People who do the right thing. People who do good works in faith, because they're led well, they're taught well, and they hold the truth firmly. Those are people who do good works, and that's the point of this whole thing. Declare these things. Exhort, rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. We should have sound motives, sound manners, and sound matter in what's taught. And what is taught is what God has done in Christ. That's the main thing. It's not teaching what you should be doing only. It's not teaching only the imperatives without the indicatives or only the indicatives without the imperatives. It is what God has done for us. That's the only place we can find our response. And 3, 1 through 15, it says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Yes, you are members of another kingdom, but whatever worldly kingdom God has you in, you're to be submissive to the rulers and the authorities in that kingdom whether that means Hunt County, whether that means America, whether you're in another country serving, you have to remain subject to the governing authorities, as Romans 13 says. To be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling. Avoid quarreling until you can't avoid it. That's the biblical precedent. To be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. I mean, good grief, is that a high bar or what? Perfect courtesy toward all people in a culture that is not even remotely defined by perfect courtesy. We, we have complete shows dedicated to the entertainment 
of being discourteous to people and rude. It's called Real Housewives. If you watch it, you should <laughs> repent. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. I mean, it's just this picture of a miserable, miserable existence. So what do y'all do? Well, we sit around hating others and hated by, while we're hated by them because we just argue and we just get on each other and, and hate each other. But when the goodness of the loving, the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, circle this next phrase. He saved us. Circle it, because that's the whole point of the gospel. That's the whole point of this letter. When goodness and loving kindness of our God appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by the grace, here's the big so that, why did God save us? So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. If you have believed in God, your life should be one of carefulness to good works, carefully devoted to good works. We will not sloppily stumble into good works. We will not sloppily stumble into faith. It takes discipline and careful devotion. These things are excellent and profitable for all people. As opposed to those, those arguments over in the quarrels and the dissensions, these are excellent and these are profitable to all people when you do such things. But avoid these controversies and dissensions. And then in 12 it says, When I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me in Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. It's just so personal. You begin to see it's not just this like theologian, you know, stalwart you know, guy. It's, it's hey... I'm going to spend the winter in Nicopolis, and when I send Artemis and Tychicus, um, Titus, I'd love it if you'd come see me. I mean, it's just real people. Do your best to speed Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. So when you're sending people out, make sure they got what they need. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. Again, good works, good works, good works. Devotion, devotion, good works. So as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who have love, who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. God saved us so that we would have real hope, which is completely linked to our eternity. And that eternity gives us real clarity on what we devote our lives to now, which is good works, which is only accomplished through solid truth and solid teaching done by proper leaders. That's the picture of Titus. Let's pray. Lord, you are great and greatly to be praised how humbling it is to, to consider your high call for the leadership of the church and for the church itself. Um, Lord, I pray that we would hold firmly to the truth, that we would devote our lives to good works. I pray that older men would be quickened to walk according to this text, that younger men would do the same, and that older women and younger men would, women would do the same, and everyone who is an employee would consider the faith and salvation of their employer through their work. Lord, I'm thankful that in all the things we've considered, no one loves the church more than you. And any time we are not sure what's going on, it is always good to remember that you are always doing far more than we realize. We love you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Two things before you leave. No study next week because it's spring break. <laughs>